Welcome to the Business of Beverages, drinks industry insights with makers, marketeers, and mischief. Hello there, and welcome to the Business of Beverages. I'm your host, Will Keating, and I'm joined today by Picard Nesson, our guest co-host for the day. Hello, Picard. Hey, I'm no foxy, but I am foxy. <laughs> that's a bad joke that can't that can't we I, if you don't cut that i'm 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 not giving you sign off on this episode <laughs> obviously that's to stay in now <laughs> oh, okay. um i can attest Ricard is indeed foxy he's not our foxy but he's foxy so Ricard, mm-hmm. i'm delighted you could join us no expense has been incurred in jailing you to join the business of beverages team but we're delighted and privileged to have you. So you normally co-host the Liquid Assets podcast. Is that correct? Yeah, Liquid Assets. It's uh, kind of like business of beverages. Um, long time listener. I love what you guys do. So Well, we were inspired by the Liquid Assets podcast. There's no doubt. So you guys have been at it for a number of years. It's the podcast of the global beverages team in Rabobank. Isn't that right? Yeah. And it, it's basically the same stuff, right? Uh, we don't make content for consumers. We make content for people who make beverages. Our, our, the, our title could just as easily be the business of beverages, but you're better at marketing than we are. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I didn't think of your title when, when we did ours. Well, to be fair, I think you guys are that little bit more professional. I think it shows in almost everything that you do. You guys have a fantastic grasp of the overall economics and the analysis of uh, the beverage industry across different categories. So some highlights for me. I was and still am a huge fan of liquid acids and what you guys do. But what I love is the way you cover some topics in, in great depth. So one of my favorites last year was you guys did an episode on our brand still built in the on trade. Also, mm-hmm. a personal favorite it was the Celebrity Brands 101 that you guys did with Elizabeth Banks. I don't know how you managed to swing that one, but fair play to you. Yeah. And you're moving into our territory. You're stealing our, our march on us. You, you moved into quizzes as well. Yeah. Yeah. And no, th- those two episodes were great. It's just kind of a series of like looking at the world around us and be like, how you build a brand is changing a lot. Uh, part of it is like, how do you build a brand online? And then it was like, well, if you're going to build a brand online, can't you use celebrities? But mm-hmm. what do you do with the on trade? And so we spoke to Campari, who built Aperol Spritz in the on trade and yeah. the most iconic and perhaps most successful brand ever built in the on trade, uh, or at least in the last 25 years. So great, great topics and and a lot of guests with authority to talk about them. So thanks. You should stop pitching my thing though. Like you're gonna, like <laughs> seriously, like stop talking about my podcast. Let's, the the business of beverages, great podcast. Leave it a review. I, I love what you guys are doing too. And if you love what they're doing, you'll love what we do and vice versa. I, I strongly encourage anyone who listens to this because of me to subscribe to, to the business of beverages. They're always good. Thank you very much, Picard. We will put the check in the post. So from my perspective, though, what I was delighted that we could do. So Foxy was unavailable this week, um, unfortunately, to help interview our main guest. So Johnny Cal is the chief marketing officer for Heineken in the USA. And Johnny is absolutely superb gentleman fantastic marketeer and has a great way of expressing his opinions and insights into the category overall. So I was delighted to be able to call on your expertise and your knowledge of the US market. So I know you have a huge transatlantic skill set, but what I thought would be interesting was to get your perspectives and your questions and put them to Johnny in relation to how Heineken are performing across the portfolio and indeed across the category in the US. 
I mean, the U.S. market's super exciting right now, and I think it's just such a large market that that it's, of course, a a, a place of dramatic importance for any beverage company with with global ambitions. So uh, I'm really glad I, I got invited. Uh, I would say, though, that um, I should have warned you before you invited me on that I would talk as much as I do, which <laughs> I, I just want to like fully apologize ahead of time. But but it was it was uh, absolutely exciting to, to have this conversation. You know, and, and I got to say, Johnny, what an eloquent and, and intelligent person. I mean, there was a bunch of stuff we actually ended up talking about after the recording ended yes. <laughs> and uh i was just amazed at the the breadth of his knowledge and to be honest clearly one of not only the most intelligent people in marketing or in beer but in the entire beverage industry for me that i've met in in my years in the industry uh johnny i didn't think was gonna be able to get off the phone after uh we stopped recording <laughs> you were you were pumping him for information but johnny ever the gentleman was only too happy to oblige so why don't we get straight into it let johnny speak for himself we started off by asking him about the portfolio that he looks after across the u.s Johnny, your role. So obviously, it's a huge role. Heineken USA, very large business. You have a number of brands, including Heineken, Heineken Zero, Heineken Light, Amstel, Dosikis, Arizona, Sunrise, Hard Seltzer, Strongbow. Am I leaving anything out? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a good uh, description of the portfolio. There's a bunch of beautiful brands in there. Probably the the miss there is Tecate, which is our, uh, sits squarely in the authentic Mexican uh, segment, an absolutely gorgeous brand from Mexico, beautiful beer, gorgeous brand. And actually, it's an interesting one for us because it's from the town of Tecate, which sits on the border between the US and, and Mexico um, in an absolutely stunning part of the world. So it's funny when we see the Mexican brands that have been so successful in the US, it's hard to say where Corona's from. It's, I mean, it's yeah. from Mexico, self-evidently. Uh, Dos Equis on our side is from Mexico, but Tecate is from Tecate. Yes. Uh, and that makes it a very, very special brand. Beautiful history. With all that focus on beer, then, obviously, beer is your business through and through. And I know from your, your past experience, you are a very experienced beer marketeer. But as you sit now looking at the world from Heineken's perspective in the US, what do you think the overview or the category view for beer is in 2022? Or is that question even relevant anymore with all the category convergence which is going on in and around beer? It's a good question. Well, I think if you'd asked the question three or four years ago, any marketeer or commercial leader in any beverage company was probably still in the middle of a fixation with one's own category. I am in beer. The beer market's important to me. I'm in wine. The wine market's important to me and so on. And there's no doubt that if you look over the long term in the US, for example, beer has lost share of throat to other alcoholic beverages, whether that's uh, liquor or spirits or wine. But I think now that question becomes less and less relevant because you have a blurring of categories. Um, as we talk about it right now, you know, who's truly concerned about category dynamics? Well, Nielsen are, and I am, if you want to talk about beer. But when we talk at the same time about being consumer centric and actually worrying about what people want, did anyone actually ever go into a grocery store and say, I wonder, is this a fermented wine or is it a vodka based uh, RTD? I, I just never heard anyone actually say that. So as long as the beverage companies are bringing you know, 
compelling innovation to the market that's doing either a functional or emotional job. What category it's in is it's important from the perspective of running your business and understanding category health, but it's not important from through the lens of the consumer. And so that's the, the two things you have to battle. Now, there are there are things you need to do as a participant in the category to drive the health of the category. And I'll take the example of Captain Morgan or Jägermeister, who have both very successfully infiltrated, in inverted commas, classic beer occasionality in the on-premise, for example. You know, that's a risk to category performance. And the question becomes, well, what can we do to win back some of those occasions? So you do have to take care of the category. But I think that's the role of the business leaders rather than the consumer. And what we've seen certainly in the last several years here in the US and it's accelerating is, you know, what is it? Nobody actually cares. Um, so what is a seltzer? I mean, it's a question we get asked all the time. <laughs> but like, what is it? Is it sugar based? Is it malt based? Is it vodka based? What's the difference between a, a ready to drink vodka cocktail? Which is... Like- it's interesting to see even that the industry uh, press gets confused because technically uh, a lot of people will call seltzer flavored malt beverages. A lot of them don't even have malt. They're just sugar-based and they're technically beer, so they're not even FMBs. But then right. you also see others include them in RTDs and not necessarily like a sub-beer category. So it, it exactly. is quite and, and interesting. Freaking out, you know? And in the end, it's, it's a much simpler question, which is, yes, if we want to if we want to represent our share in a particular vertical or talk with the analysts, that's important. But fundamentally, we're doing what we do to delight people and bring them together um, over a beverage. So whether that's sugar-based or malt-based, I'm really not sure that anyone's that stressed out about yeah. that right now. If I can, I, I do want to dig at the subtext of Will's question, right? Because I, I was just now looking at some of the statistics on beer and the beer category in the U.S. on a per capita basis has been shrinking for 40 years, right? And so if you're looking at how do we build or win and as a beer brand in the United States, you're not going to win by capturing like a growing share of a category. And I think that's like a big part of why um, brewers like ABI and, and Heineken, all these guys are, are looking beyond beer to, to, to grow. But I guess the question for me is like, what are the dimensions upon which you decide which categories or what products you have a right to win in, right? Like, wh- or where do you say, hey, we're really good at X, therefore we should build more in Y, if that makes any sense. Particularly as a marketer, right? Not necessarily from production side, but from the marketer's perspective. Yeah. As an organization, we try to be we, we try to be relentlessly consumer focused. But like, what marketing guy has never said that? I mean, have you ever met a marketing person who says we're not focused on the consumer? Of course not. But for us, you know, we we tend to think it's it's we have incredible capability in the production side of the business, and we've been doing it for 150 years. And and generally speaking, you know, our business is premium led. You know, we're in the higher quality end of things in general. And when I talk to my head of supply chain, for example, we we openly discuss that it's his job to make what we can sell, not our job to make what, you know, to sell what he can make. I'm sure I'm sure he really likes that. He loves that. Yeah, <laughs> it's because it's very tempting to say, here's what we can do. Let's do more of that. But if you, you mentioned those underlying trends uh, for us, that triggers two actions action number one is obviously enter new categories and i'll come back to how we choose those in a sec 
Action number two is win in the category that your core business is in. And for us, we're a premium brands organization. So we're not always interested in selling more. We're interested in selling better. And so whether that's pricing, whether that's premium positioning, whether that is bringing different propositions to the beer market, that's an important part of the mix. Example, Heineken Zero, which has be, has seen explosive growth internationally by reigniting occasions when beer was losing. So you can do things in the sort of fundamental core. However, to answer your question, how do we identify where we go next? You have to have some credible or credibility in terms of your brand or your capability giving you a right to win in in any category in which you choose. So we're quite choiceful around where we go. Um, We could make soft drinks. It's not a particularly difficult thing to do, but we have no reason to do that. It doesn't fit with our strategic direction. It does. We don't have unique capability in that space, you know. And do you really want to take on, you know, the behemoths in that market? Not, not really sure. So we tend to lean into spaces where we can add a lot of value, either by the production capabilities that we have, or by bringing an absolutely sensational proposition to the market that consumers, people, look at and think, I like what this is about, um, and so. That's always a combination of the macro trends for consumers and your capability. So if we take, if we go back to the Heineken Zero example, which if you look to global innovation in beer is probably the most successful beer innovation, core beer innovation that we've seen globally in years. That is the confluence of uh, macro mega trends from consumers around health and wellness, but incredible technical uh, technical and brewing capability from us to finally crack a way to make non-alcoholic beer that tastes incredible. And it's very, very complicated, but it's very, very simple. Everyone who drinks Heineken Zero, the first thing they say is, wow, that tastes like beer. <laughs> and that is why it's working. So it's the it's looking for those sort of, if you will, sweet spots between what's going on with the consumer, what capability do you have, and to an extent, what credibility do you have to enter that space? And I think that's how that's the kind of balancing we're always looking for before we get into something. So I'm very interested in the soft drink example that you you gave, because the corollary of what you were saying is that on the other side, there are soft drink manufacturers who are licking their lips and thinking, well, you know, we can get into the alcohol beverage business very quickly and very easily and at relatively low cost to them. So, you know, we've had Topo Chico from Coca-Cola. Uh, Mountain Dew has has announced that there's a, a hard Mountain Dew project. Dew, yeah. uh, I think Monster Energy have announced something relatively recently, I think. But what, what I'm very interested to understand is, do you sit there and think that this, this spells disaster? Or are you thinking, bring it on, guys. What is it that you can bring that isn't already being serviced by the brewers and by the alcohol manufacturers? Yeah, there, I mean, there's no doubt that brands in a sort of modern consumer landscape can stretch not only intra-category or within the sub-segments of any category, they can probably stretch beyond categories. Um, I mean, we've heard reports of Yeti, one of the most iconic cooler box brands in the country from Texas, launching a seltzer. Sonic, a large burger chain, hamburger chain, has launched a seltzer, which is retailing in, in markets around the US. Mountain Dew will, you know, has cachet. It's an iconic brand. And there's no reason why it can't stretch into the alcohol space. 
in the US, it's quite unique because to stretch those brands into the alcohol or the beer world, you obviously have to engage with the three tier system. So it's quite, you know, there are high barriers to entry. So uh, Topo Chico are not entering alcohol. Topo Chico are effectively partnering with an existing provider to give the brand access to the alcohol, uh, the three tier system in alcohol. But Topo is a great example. It's an adult brand. It's very iconic. It's very successful in its category. And it makes sense. It's gone into the seltzer space and will most likely go into ranch water, which is a Texan seltzer, tequila, sparkling water and lime. Topo Chico is often the sparkling water that's used in Texas for ranch water. So there's there's logic there. And I think in the end, Will, it boils down to something more fundamental. It's like, do these things make sense to companies and or consumers uh, when people see it? Are they able to wrap their heads around it and think that's an interesting and compelling proposition? But it doesn't unduly scare us because there will always be iconic brands operating in your category, which for which you compete for market share. Whether that's Topo Chico or Mountain Dew or Bud Light, they're all competitors to be respected and to be fought with and dealt with and, and competed with. But it doesn't disproportionately scare us. I think it's harder to go the other way. It, also with from a responsibility perspective. Uh, where there is and are certainly examples of brands stretching where, you know, you, we, you have to be careful around your your responsibility and the sustainability agenda for the business, which is we have to market and and, and develop alcohol brands in, in a way that recognizes that alcohol is a complex category. Um, so I don't see that we would be stretching our beer brands into soft drinks, for example, because it's a very confusing position a for the consumer and it's probably not the right thing to do from a responsibility perspective so we have to be cognizant of what brands we have but new brands coming in would i be more worried about topo chico or for example tito's they could both come in immediately to the seltzer category um, they both have a degree of legitimacy and that would be something that you would have to deal with no more than uh, Budweiser can launch a non-alcoholic beer or a you know an, an import. So I don't worry more than usual. I just, <laughs> as a CMO, spend all the time worrying about everybody who's possibly going to eat our lunch. But that's that's the job, right? You know, we're talking about partnerships with Pepsi and Boston Beer. Um, you know, Boston Beer partnering with with Beam Centauri with the Salsa brand partnership. You guys partnered with Arizona. To, to do the hard seltzer on the back of an iconic brand that is associated with summer and hot days, uh, you know, at a price point that's actually quite accessible. Um, is, is there a reason you thought that was the right brand partnership? And as a marketer, does that give you unique opportunities to speak to a new audience or, or some other thing that, that, you know, maybe the press hasn't thought about as much? Yeah, I think it's a. It's, there's also a practicality to this, which is um, the seltzer category had uh, had seen explosive growth, and if you're gonna, you know, but it also has the classic uh, manifestations of first mover advantage. Truly, and White Claw have effectively seventy percent of the category between the two of them, which is not unique to seltzer. That often happens in explosive growth territories, and so there are different ways to enter a category if you're coming a little bit later. And anyone who would say they knew for sure this is what was going to happen with Seltzer, it, let's be honest, is making it up, right? We don't see these kind of explosive growth stories uh, every two to three years. This this is a real unicorn. 
So for us, then you have to be care- careful and considerate about how you come in, because just bringing the 58th version of Truly to the market isn't isn't going to delight anybody. It's also not important for your distributors, who in many cases already sell Truly or White Claw. So just because you are bringing something doesn't mean it's necessarily compelling. So you've seen Budweiser get into the category, obviously leveraging the system strength and the machine that they have here in the U.S., And then you see the partnership wave. And that's really exactly to your point, a way to maybe talk to a different type of consumer and to offer something a little bit different from the originating core of Truly and and, and White Claw. But very pragmatically, you know, we still see seltzer penetration is low, for example, in convenience. It's low in single serve. Is there a more iconic, convenient single serve product than Arizona? Well, in its core business, it's absolutely, as you know, here, it's, it's absolutely everywhere. So, and demographically, Seltzer, it, Seltzer's penetration is disproportionately towards white households. Um, again, the data is changing all the time, but you're, you're looking at, you know, one in six white house, households, one in 15 black households where you'll see uh, Seltzer penetration. So there are opportunities uh, around the, the sort of the fringes. I think it's, it's again, it goes back to CPG fundamentals is if you're going to bring something to the market, you've got to have a point of view rather than just a copy paste of a brand that has dominant share like a White Claw or like a Truly. So it's going to be quite interesting. I think the next several years for Seltzer become a really interesting thing to watch. And, and we all torture ourselves with how CPG categories uh, evolve and sustain themselves you know, a year to date, 7.7% of, of total beer. Um, but the growth now is into, you know, low double digits and we're in the 11, 12%. Now, look, if you sit in core premium beer, I'll, I'll bite your hand off for a 12% growth rate in my category. <laughs> uh, back to the earlier question. Um, but when you're coming from 350% growth and the, obviously the base sizes are changing, etc., this now becomes an interesting category because now, you get into the world of share growth rather than surfing, right? The wave of the explosive growth. And that's always an interesting space because that's usually when the cream rises to the top. Um, so we're, we're excited to see what happens over the coming couple of years. But no doubt it's been a, it's been a total phenomenon. I think the thing that gets overlooked in Seltzer at, at a holistic level, it's quite a compelling consumer proposition. You know, everyone's talking about the brands and the category and the innovation, but fundamentally, it's quite a good offer. 100 calories, easy to drink, uh, not bloating, great on daytime occasions. Like it's, it's a, you know, there's a reason it grew is because it's really quite a good product um, for many people at many moments in their day. I, that's actually gets directly to, to the point I wanted to make. Um, and, and, you know, the, the thing I see about hard seltzer as, as being such an amazing category is, is I look back to ABI and, and the way they presented Bon and Viv as like this. They, they literally put mermaids in their ad. And it was like this amazing thing, whereas, you know, the beer category for, whatever reason has been very male dominated both in its marketing and in its its consumer groups and and recently i did a, re- a study a, uh, a year ago or so that that basically showed women are the majority of regular alcohol consumers under the age of 26 right i think that the real aha for me on seltzer was like you made a product that was really excellent for this demographic group that had been underserved by this occasion, which is like a, you know, thirst quenching 
drink occasion, right? And wow, you've unlocked all of this growth there. But then it turns out because gender roles are also fluid, that a bunch of men want the exact same thing. And I'm a little curious, like, you know, as a CMO, how do you find or identify those opportunities often depends on the people on your team and the people within your organization that can have firsthand experience talking about that. I'm just curious, is as you start moving outside of core beer and start moving into these categories that are probably going to be more diverse and, and more female centric, does that also put pressure on you guys to learn more and hire more from, from different groups? Well, it, I guess it depends on, on the structure of your organization, but we have a little bit of a head start is that the CEO of Heineken USA, Maggie uh, Timony, is the first major beer CEO in the US who's a female. Um, and as Maggie said, she wants to be famous for being a brilliant CEO, not famous for being a female CEO, but she is a female. Um, so it's hardwired into our organization because the person who most quickly can fire my ass is, in fact, quite focused on making sure we have balanced propositions. Um, but I, I think it's the question is in, I find the question interesting because I think it paints a picture of what beer historically has looked like in the United States. And then I think back to your early question around declining share of throat and or the category to rails. 67% of my department are female and my CEO is female. And it's not a conscious effort to say, let's hire more women because that's where we have to go. We just have a naturally talented bunch of people in our marketing function who are completely focused on the consumer, who, who of course, then understand these occasions and understand some of the opportunity spaces that are out there. I think, though, the opportunity spaces are, it, it's too easy to look at it through a fairly linear lens of, of gender. There's no doubt that gender plays a role, and we've seen how, how wine has behaved or how spirits and liquor have behaved And we've seen the sort of ebbs and flows of all of the categories within alcohol. But I do feel that things have become incredibly multidimensional. And in one way, that means that your offers are fragmenting, that they're becoming more and more bespoke and more and more sort of hyper targeted. And yet, at the same time, some like some enduring consumer fundamentals are ever more important than they ever were. We talk constantly about the wave of innovation. Are all of those products actually good enough? No way. There are There's a litany of very average stuff out there. And just because it's a compelling piece of positioning, it also needs to be a beautiful beverage. And that's where organizations like ours will draw the line. Because we're a family company, because we are, are an enduring partner in the business, because we've been doing it for 150 years, we're not interested in what's going to make us the money next week. We're interested in how are we going to build enduring positions for decades. And that is a little bit the difference. And I think we have to challenge yourself and go to, and, and you've both done it, go to you know, a, a Kroger or a Walmart and look at that beer aisle and look at it through the perspective of who is it for, to your earlier point, lots and lots of different people, but how good is it? And consumers have a funny way of picking the winners, the ones that deserve to be chosen. And you, when we went to Walmart this year, for example, you, you, we were talking about Seltzer earlier. You know, they were they saw two hundred and eighty-seven Seltzer innovations. There's no incremental shelf space, 
So you need to have a very particular point of view. Um, but I think our, our role is to be incredibly compelling for as many different types of people as possible, but not lose sight of the core fundamentals, which is enjoyment, sociability, togetherness, beautiful products. And then the category stuff will effectively take care of itself. Um, but bottom line, yeah, my boss is, of course, intuitively aware of how we can win in, in the female market. Take and focus a little bit on Heineken then. Obviously, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about Seltzer. But as you say, Heineken has been around for 150 years. It is the mainstay, the tentpole of that sort of premium international lager and, and has been through so many of these, I won't say crises, but if you look back, I'm sure there was explosive growth in the 1980s in light beer. In the 1990s, there was explosive growth in Alcopops or FMBs. Craft beer had explosive growth in the in the noughties, and we've seen seltzer explosively grow, and that growth is, is slowing down. But throughout all of that, premium beer continues to be an exceptionally profitable and competitive space. What's the future for Heineken in that space You know, in the next two, three, four, five years? Yeah, I mean, what you've basically outlined, Bill, is that or Will is that beer is great, right? So, and there's a reason it's yeah. a, a very popular and compelling proposition all over the place because a lot of human beings like it um, and have done for millennia. So, yeah, our our objective is, you know, we, the brand is the brand is doing really well internationally as we expand into markets uh, more and more. China, you know, India, Brazil being a more uh, recent but not overnight success story but brazil is you know really doing well for us so i think what makes the brand very compelling is that we stand for a truly global set of values and we operate in a way that lots of people can relate to but it not in a way that it becomes so generic and so broad that there's no traction you know we we elevate moments. I mean, the brand is always, a, you know, almost always stepping up a little bit. I was at a research uh, event recently with consumers on the brand here. And of course, it's it's a small sample. It's all, it's anecdotal. My, my research team will, will kill me for sharing it. But, you know, we had incredible share of first dates. And we started to we started to unpick this with the consumer, this consumer group I was like, why? Why is it if you're on a, on a first date post pandemic? That like you want a beer, and you're nine out of ten times they're going to order Heineken, and it's because it represents that sort of step up from, if you will, every day, but also that you're still ordering a beer, which makes you kind of at least relatable and accessible, right? It's not cognac, it's not champagne, it's still a beer, but it's not domestic. So we uh, we don't know yet what to do with that insight, but we found it strangely compelling because it kind of represents something about the brand. Beer uh, plays different roles in different parts of the world. And, and depending on whether your orientation is European versus working in Central America versus, you know, wherever you may be, there are different manifestations. But it's invariably social. It's invariably uh, collegiate or, you know, um, it's about friendship. It's always about refreshment. Fundamentally, it's still a, a, a beverage. But there are certain fundamentals about the category that, that just draw people to it, whether that's... Um, you know, like a beer after work is a great example. That moment of separation we see now with the pandemic. None of us know when we're working and when we're not working. I mean, yes. there's a kind of a mental release where you say, you know, what, I'm going to grab a beer. And that's kind of the in inverted commas end of the day. So for us, we, you know, we're not 
overly concerned about the category. It's endured this long. And we have just a beautiful, iconic brand that really does fabulous things. And I think that is a little bit the the magic or the secret sauce for us is look at how we do Formula One. Look at how we do here in the US Coachella. Um, the things that the brand touches elevates whatever that is. And that I, people recognize that and understand that. It's like we make stuff better. Um, so that's a little bit what maybe underlies the enduring success on the brand. I'm, I'm just realizing that Heineken um, should be the number one beer brand in the US, if indeed they're the number one beer for your first date, because according to all the friends I have that are dating right now, there's a lot of freaking first dates yeah. now that people use like <laughs> these dating apps. Like it's, uh, and it also leads to the direct question. I want, I'm trying to think about what drink I would use to represent myself in a dating way. I'm almost hoping you're going to ask me out now. I, I, I don't know where this is going, but... Uh. I, I, I have a suspicion we're going to end up having a Heineken. <laughs> if you go out for drinks with me, drinks are free, right? Can I ask, though, if, if earlier you talked, Johnny, about identifying large consumer macro trends and, and trying to find ways in which they could be serviced, and I think that the example you talked about was Heineken Zero, and it's probably worth drilling into a bit more because people may not realize you were actually the global vice president for no and low alcohol beverages in Heineken for a number of years. Isn't that right? Yeah. So I spent, uh, I, I can't take the credit for Heineken Zero. It was uh, in in train long before I get there. I mean, I'll shamelessly take the credit for it, but I, I can't <laughs> say that I own that. But we did. I had spent a couple of years as the CMO in, in Russia, which was a, an incredible experience. Absolutely loved it. Uh, and then relocated to Amsterdam to to lead our low and no alcohol division. And that obviously makes a lot of strategically for the organization. We have breweries, we have trucks, we have sales forces, we're, we have customer relationships. So there's a beautiful adjacency there for our business to lean into non-alcoholic or low alcohol uh, propositions. Um, and of course, that's very much uh, consistent with consumer trends around wellness, moderation, health, and just the vast numbers of people around the world who don't drink alcohol, whether that's for religious reasons or um, just for lifestyle reasons, the number of young people who don't drink or rarely drink alcohol has, has grown exponentially over uh, over the last decade. And uh, so for us, it was a really important uh, opportunity strategically for the organization to get into that space. Clearly, Heineken Zero has been the flagship brand in the progress, if you will, in low and no alcohol, because, of course, you're bringing uh, a, a terrific product. Um, and that is fundamentally the first thing that gets played back to us all the time is it just is beautiful. Um, but also you're bringing an iconic brand into the non-alcoholic beer category. Um, and that combination has worked really well. It's very, if you look back in that category over time, historically, it was about what you weren't doing. Uh, yes. you, you weren't drinking because you were driving, because you had a big uh, day the next day, be, because you were unwell. Because, and it was effectively a distress category. And when you ordered a beer in that category, the first question from your friends was, what's wrong? 
<laughs> it's it's also the kind of thing you buy. Like if you're, I think when I was in high school, somebody literally did this to me. I was like, "Hey, you're 21. Can you buy me a beer?" And they're like, "Uh, I can." And they go and like they bring you back like a six pack of duels, and you're like, "No, no it's yeah. over." It was. It's like it was. It went from being a joke to being something. Yeah, it's incredibly progressive. I mean, I mean, even down to just how it's positioned now. You can, you know, now you can do all of those things where you wouldn't normally have a beer, and we recognize there's millions of occasions when you would love a beer but you don't want the alcohol um, and historically those two things were umbilically connected so you couldn't ever separate them and now we're able to say okay if you'd love a beer that's fine there are markets clearly around the world you take spain right so you're in barcelona today it's the you know, best everywhere it's everywhere it's completely normal and it's you know depending on the year between 15 and 20 percent of the total beer market in the u.s it's 0. 0.6 um so we see that if we can bring that combination of positivity, an absolutely stunning beverage and a beautiful brand to the table, that, again, people are responding to that. So you're really capitalizing on a macro consumer trend, but you're solving it, Will, in a number of dimensions. It's not just, hey, this is beautiful, drink it. Okay, that's one dimension. It's, hey, this is beautiful. And it's from a brand you really admire. So you look good. It's, there's an equity play, there is a sort of reassurance play for the consumer. And then you, you've seen recently, we're, you know, we're trialing and rolling out draft zero, zero, for example. So that's going to really change the on-premise. And that's good from a choice perspective. It's good from a responsibility perspective. I mean, as someone who often orders a non-alcoholic beer, I am just so thankful to the brands that can provide it. Like, I'm just like, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're helping me buy Heineken normal beer when I want that because you're serving me when I need it and I'm thankful. Correct. Yeah. And what's been very interesting is the relationship between the drinkers of Heineken Zero and their relationship with the Heineken brand, which exactly as you outlined is almost universally positive. So we see not only strategically that we capitalize on opportunities that we mightn't have been able to, but it's really great for the equity of Heineken original because of, you know, people are appreciative of what we've done and they reconsider the brand. So if we go to Byron Sharp and we start to talk about household penetration, Heineken Zero is a strategic masterstroke because it's broadening out our penetration opportunities and it doesn't behave in such a way that it's so different from Heineken that you feel like you're drinking something else. You feel like you're participating in the brand. To be honest, it's an absolute case study. I'm sure for many years people will look at it in terms of academic research because of how many things it, it lines up in a positive direction for the overall brand but also i think you deserve the credit because you're reaping the rewards of years of investment in the technological development the brewing side of it you know to be 100 percent clear you know from a brewing perspective i so admire it i started my career brewing caliber and i can tell you that it was not my proudest moment you know it, it was an awful beer to be perfectly frank, uh, Guinness, you know, knew that. That's why they didn't put their name on it. That's why it wasn't called Guinness non-alcoholic because there were fundamentally huge problems with it. So technologically, it had to be solved. Yeah. Also, you had to invest ahead. I was heavily skeptical when uh, Amstel Radler was launched in this market and it didn't prove successful. I was skeptical when uh, Heineken Light was launched. And, you know, it's still around, but it certainly wasn't the success that some people perceived it might be. But again, you were investing ahead, investing ahead and backing the fact that ultimately con the consumer need would be married to a technical solution, which was delivered 
in a beautiful and really compelling brand proposition. Without wanting to uh, to fawn, I really do think it is a brilliant piece of product development and marketing. And in the end, Will, you make a good point around your caliber example. It is called Heineken Zero, and we are a publicly traded but family uh, family led company. So there is a the fact that it's on, let's say, the crown jewel of our organization. Um, you know, we wouldn't do that if we weren't confident in, in, in the product itself. Just it's not a good idea. So we are truly confident. But I agree, the brewers did something absolutely unbelievable. Yes. And uh, if we had two and a half hours, I could explain it to you. But then I'd have to delete the podcast, James Bond style. But they did something truly brilliant. And from there, of course, then you realize you have the ability to solve for the opportunity. And guess what? Again, the fundamental point of CPG marketing is if you do something that's compelling and beautiful and it works, guess what happens? Your your brand and your business explodes. And that is the same whether it's beer or beverages or Oreos or Reese's Pieces or Harley Davidson's. It, it just, you've got to do brilliant stuff that capitalizes on an opportunity. That was a really nice bow on the top of a conversation, hearkening back to other categories as well. I mean... Man, you're good at marketing. Um, you should. I mean, have you ever thought about doing a career in, I should, in I that? Do this. Uh, yeah. I'm good well, at finding people who can do marketing. That's the uh, that's the trick. I think, Johnny. Why don't we finish there? Uh, thank you very much for your time. No problem. That was a brilliant conversation. I have to say, Johnny is. As we described at the start, he's erudite, he's articulate, but he's also just a thorough gentleman. I, I, I had a lot of fun, um, though I did warn you, uh, or as I, I did talk and, and derail the conversation a little bit, I hope it was still as wonderful as uh, to the audience as it was for us. I think, to be fair, Johnny has such a broad experience and a broad skill set that actually we could have gone in any number of different directions. But the idea of giving us that overview of how the seltzer category was really interacting with the beer category i thought yeah. was was very interesting and i thought he gave wonderful insight into how in the seltzer category first mover advantage plays such a big deal and therefore how others have to cut their cloth to suit their need and and uh, if they want to play in that space it might be through partnerships or some other method that's what i thought was a, a pretty interesting point of view and I think it was a, the right time to have that conversation because in the week or so since we talked, uh, there was a big deal that just happened, at least in the U.S., which is the Monster Beverages acquiring uh, Canarchy, which is a large yes. craft brewing conglomerate in, in, in the U.S. And so, you know, we're just seeing more and more of this blending of business models. And, and it's really helpful to have a framework, I think. To work that out. And it's really nice to see that Heineken has a robust way of thinking about it uh, for their business. And I think probably a pretty flexible way. I, I got the impression that they went into the partnership with Arizona with their eyes open, that it's not necessarily, you know, the the um, the last move we'll see there or, or that it's a completely permanent fixture. But I thought it was a very interesting way of describing it as a way to access that market and to look at the different channels in which that market was playing in. The other thing that I think is particularly interesting about the monster deal is that I've, I've heard comments about it from lots of different perspectives that perhaps one of the motivations for Canarchy was actually the ability to access um, can supplies and a million supplies. Yeah. Um, 
it's not impossible to believe, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, it's an interesting that that there's a, it's definitely a multi multifaceted deal, and the synergies that you can uncover from these kind of opportunities are you know not necessarily unexpected, but but multifaceted. I will say though, um, you're you live in Dublin ish area, right? I live very close to the center of Dublin. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I visited Dublin uh, on my way back from Spain, like uh, last weekend. I can't believe we missed each other. Yeah. And ironically, I had a Heineken Zero Zero, which was interesting because I drink a lot of non-alc beer and I drink a lot of alcoholic beer. And I think on more than one occasion, I've grabbed the wrong Heineken and only (laughs) realized halfway through that I was drinking an alcoholic Heineken when I was looking for a non-alc one and vice versa. It's a really, really good product. And I think they've done a very different approach to, to brewing that non-elk beer than, than, other, than other brewers, where they've actually gone and, and used constituents uh, and, and did a very different process. It, it, and it came out with a great, great product. So we, we ended up talking, obviously, about that one in a huge amount of detail with Johnny. But that's what I think is so admirable about the growth of, of Heineken Zero is the fact that they invested ahead. They invested in the brewing technology. They invested in growing the category. So that years out, they were investing ahead. And then also, at the same time, investing in the brewing technology to actually make a beer, non-alcoholic, that tasted like a beer. And I think Heineken Zero was an inflection point for the category in that yeah, and, and I mean the category itself is is evolving in, in such a way that when I was in Dublin, I didn't post a picture of pint of Guinness. I posted a posted a picture of a pint of Guinness Zero Zero on my on my social media, and and it was uh, even more interesting. It was actually my my written review that got the most likes, and not the photo. I think there's so much appetite for people uh, to to get access to non alcoholic drinks, and I'm glad that that these companies are giving people what they want. More choice, all for it. I think all in all, Heineken in the US is well set with the spread they have across their portfolio. And I think the continued investment in Heineken Zero Zero is going to pay dividends across a number of different facets of the business, not least of which is that it's going to help them enormously in dark markets. What I will say is thank you for having me on, Will. And if you ever do need a Foxy alternative, I'm your man. (laughs) of that there is no doubt Picard thank you very much for your time it was fantastic to have you on and we look forward to the next slew of episodes of (laughs) Mm -hmm. Liquid Assets yeah there's a there's a lot coming and I look forward to to listening to more of what you guys do thank you very much Picard oh hold on you're back me yes I'm back thought we were going to get the whole episode out without having you on. No, not quite. I've, I've just been busy restocking the Desert Island Bar, doing the stock take, because, you know, Ireland, it's reopening. So I'm assuming our Desert Island is going to reopen as well. Yes, COVID is officially over. Is that what they said? Done, yeah. No more restrictions. Stand at the bar, shout your order, sing if you want. No problem. <laughs> but please, I've heard you sing. Let's, let's make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, and definitely don't sing your order at the bartender. What I can say, though, is in your absence, while you were restocking the bar in the desert island, Bacar did a fantastic job. I'd be a little bit worried if I were you. Oh, I'm very worried. Like That was a fantastic crossover episode where you took two really good beverage podcasters. I was giving you a compliment, Will. (laughs) You see, it's so unusual. I I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, You know, we're 23 episodes in. It's about time I threw something your way. Uh, listen, uh, as I mentioned, we are huge fans of 
Ricard and the guys in Liquid Acids, full stop. They are genuinely brilliant. So if you haven't subscribed to what they do, think of us only better. Yeah, professional. Professional us. <laughs> Maybe not quite as much crack, although they do continuously take the piss out of Ricard, which is very, very funny. <laughs> So, when you were on the desert island, did you run into our next guest? Uh, I did. There was a couple of gaps on the shelf. So, he has kindly plugged the gap with, with a fairly sizable-sized beverage. <laughs> I have to say, uh, we're, as you say, 23 episodes in, and nobody so far has taken the approach that Simon Thompson uh, from Thompson Brothers Distilleries has brought. And I have to say, he's genius. I don't want to give too much away, but this man is a clever, clever individual. You know, I can't even describe it. Let's just let's just go straight to Simon because we won't do it justice. Simon, can you tell me, please, what do you do at Thompson Brothers Distilling? So we do quite a few things. We've got a baby distillery, which is probably about the size of a lot of people's double garages. So we're only outputting about twelve thousand uh, liters of alcohol a year, and. Our kind of reason for being is to chase flavour, mostly influenced by older styles of uh, whiskey and whiskey production from the 1960s and Mm. before. So that's that's our main reason for existing there. We're very much driven by flavour and quality beyond all else, regardless of... Uh, regardless of the cost or the time, really. I mean, we take that into account to an extent, but on our scale, the only way to compete is to have some truly interesting and different flavours. Uh, so it's, well, it's been working quite well for us so far. We've been happy with the production. We'll be coming up to five years production in July of single malt. And on top of that as well, we also have our own warehouses and independent bottling uh, business. So in the last 12 months, we've done over 100 different releases through our independent bottlers, mostly single cask whiskey, but rum, cognac as well. We bottle in-house, we warehouse, in, uh, warehouse here, got capability to recask. So we're, we're most, where a lot of people in, the, in this game are doing everything under contract. We've brought everything in-house, including we've just bought a bigger electric van to do more of our own bonded transport. And we try and keep the whole thing full process, full control, and it keeps us busy. Uh, and yeah. that's to me, is exceptionally interesting because obviously you guys are based on the east coast of Scotland, but you've cast your net much wider. You've Jamaican rums, cognacs, and a, a couple of different styles of gin. Is that right? Yeah, we uh, we, make, we make our own gin as well. So we, we've been playing around around with that for actually over over five years now. Uh, that, that, that works pretty well for us. Um, and we've, we've kind of downscaled it a bit in recent years because the independent bottling side of the business is doing so well. And it's quite nice nice now because there's no pressure to put gin out. It's more a kind of a fun thing we like to do now with the independent bottling taking over as kind of the, uh, the main breadwinner to help pay our rather expensive production costs there because... You know, when you're dealing with uh, lots of different varieties of heritage barley, you know, in some instances having it organic, having it floor malted, uh, you can be double, triple or more the cost of standard uh, malting variety for a significantly lower yield. We don't use distiller's yeast at all, but we uh, focus entirely on uh, brewing varieties of yeast. So I'm not sure how many we've used over the years. And then we've kind of settled on mostly doing mostly using spent brewer's yeast uh, from local breweries with a bit of our own propagation mixed in as well, which previously we used to do 100% of our own propagations, which was uh, 
a bit hard work, really. But um, yeah, spent brewer's yeast is a good traditional way of doing it. It used to be very common up until the 60s, 70s, and still mixed in combination with distiller's yeast until much later at some distilleries. So people might be aware, if they're listening, that the varieties of yeast that you use for the, the process can actually have an enormous impact on both the flavor and the efficiency of what you do. So in years gone by, people didn't di- distinguish between brewer's yeast and distiller's yeast, but in the sort of 50s, 60s, and, and into the 70s, that really changed. And distillers have focused for the most part, almost entirely, on a kind of a pitch and ditch philosophy, which is that you buy your yeast in dry, you you pitch it in each individual batch, and then you dump the resulting yeast. They don't recycle, they don't reuse as brewers tend to. That's a very different philosophy to what you're doing. Uh, Why did you make the decision? You've got so much else going on. Was there a particular desire to, to change the approach to yeast as well as to everything else? Modern distiller's yeast is a very good balance between um, uh, flavor, performance, yield, temperature tolerance. And it's kind of an ideal mix of all these factors, uh, you know, getting the best possible yield. There's a really nice flavor profile, but all distilleries are effectively using the same handful of distillers' yeast varieties, which have very similar uh, flavor characteristics. So if you want to get away from that, you've got endless variation of uh, flavor possibilities within brewer's yeast, a huge library to draw from. You've got historic varieties. You've got varieties isolated from breweries all over the world and all over the UK. You've got old British brewing varieties you can get access to. So you've got a if you're willing to sacrifice your yield and not use distiller's yeast, then you've got a huge library of flavor potential available to you. So I'm not saying it's better than distiller's yeast. It's definitely worse performing, but you've got that greater variation in possible flavor, especially when paired with some uh, nice old barley varieties. Considering the variety that you have to choose from, if I was to put it to you that you're going to have to make a choice, if, if you were stranded on a desert island and you had plenty of drinking water, but you were allowed to choose one other drink to bring with you, what would you bring and why, please? If any drink's an option, uh, Gordon and McPhail still have some old casks from the 1930s in their warehouses. Really? So I'd, uh, I'd take one of those and once it's empty, it would make a pretty good flotation device <laughs> to uh, make, an, make an attempt to escape as well. So uh, yeah, that, you know that's that's probably where, where that's probably what I would do. Definitely a cask of whiskey, double purpose, uh, very very utilitarian. Plenty so of it. Gordon and McPhail have casks from the 1930s. Are they even st- structurally sound? That they haven't leaked at this point. Uh, yeah, they, they they look after them pretty well. They're they're in parts of the warehouse. Uh, I, I assume they still have some left. I don't think they've all been bottles. It's been you have know, not been there for a few years. But they certainly had uh, a number of casks from the late 30s kicking about. Phenomenal. So, I can't remember what the current record is, but it's all Gordon McPhail stock, the, the record holders for the, the oldest stuff. Um, you know, although I'd ha- happily take uh, one of our own casks as well. That would, that would sort me out quite well. If I'm stuck there for a few years, I think it'll take me a while to drink you know, 400, 500 litres of uh, single malt. Well, I think you'll enjoy yourself as you do it, though, and then you'll have your, uh, as you say, you'll have your flotation device to, to sail away into the sunset. Thank you very much, Simon. No problems. What a clever bloke. He's absolutely the cleverest clogs on the island. <laughs> well, he's not on the island anymore because he, he's he's drunk. 
from drinking his cask of whiskey and he's happy and he's sailing out of there paddling away <laughs> off, off into the distance yeah it might take him a while to get through that cask yeah well to be fair he 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 chose well like an 80 year old cask of whiskey i i think he he will have a fun time drinking it but actually he could have chosen any number of his own uh, whiskies as well so thompson brothers do a number of their own label bottlings uh, so they bottle whiskies from other people and not just whiskies, but brandies and uh, Jamaican rums, Trinidadian rums, loads of really interesting and funky spirits. And they do it in a very non-traditional way. So they actually have an enormous selection of people want to go to. But possibly the more interesting element of what they're doing is they're actually distilling themselves. And they're distilling not just with standard malt varieties or indeed yeast, as we, we talked about, but they're distilling with different types of barley, different grains and actually bringing back some heritage barley varieties as well you know we should probably get them on the podcast to talk about that well it's funny you should mention that so the plan is that we're going to have a conversation with both simon and alison milne from the crafty molsters and alison is an integral part of what simon is doing and the guys in, in doorknock are doing because actually alison is a farmer and a molster what she and her husband have been doing is reviving heritage varieties of barley so barley that hasn't been grown for decades or even more than a century growing these varieties up again and then malting them and supplying them to people like simon who are then able to distill whiskies which haven't probably been distilled in a century or more yeah, that's going to be a fantastic conversation because, you know, whenever we watch an ad about uh, a beer or whiskey, it's always like, you know, two or three, four natural ingredients and it's just malt. But actually, there's so much more to it than just that one word malt. Absolutely. So it, it's about how you malt it. It's about the variety of barley, how the barley's grown, how it gets treated in the field. All of those things go into the whiskey, the spirit or indeed the beer. So we're going to go into that in depth. And to be Perfectly frank, this is an ambition of mine that I've had for a long time. So when we sat down, Fox, and we started talking about what this podcast would do, uh, one of the things that I mentioned and time and time again I talk about is that we, we wanted to cover a really broad range of topics. The shorthand I always use was from barley to bartending. So finally, finally, we're going to have an episode on barley. There you go. We've just done it off. So we started with bartending. We ended up at barley. Yeah. Well, but sure, look, and we'll continue to do that. We'll continue to cover interesting topics. So I guarantee you folks that we will cover the the full gamut, both in alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages. Yeah. And and if full gamuts are your thing, you should definitely join us in Belgium in May. Yes, 100%. So if you haven't heard, we are definitely 100% going to Belgium uh, on the 25th and 26th of May. We have an amazing program for people. And it's just going to be a huge amount of crack. Exactly. Like we're being let loose in a couple of really cool breweries. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. So we have brewery visits, we have guest speakers, and we have a gastronomic program in development. We'll be able to share details with people. If you've any interest in speaking, sponsoring, attending, just drop us a line. Bizbevpod at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Business of Beverages. It's been our pleasure to bring you this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and recommend us to one other friend or colleague. As ever, we are independently produced and self-funded, so we appreciate your support in listening, sharing, or reviewing this podcast. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter, where we go by at BizBevPod. If you'd like to support us further, you can find us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash BizBevPod.
Um, my uh, my sister was a hooker in college. 